talking to another friend of Ukraine and the space, and uh, it is an utter privilege to have you here with us, sir, on this very day of this second anniversary, General McRyan. Hello, it's great to be with you again. Uh, the pleasure and the privilege is ours, of course. Um, General Ryan, we've uh, discussed it many times uh, over here. The last time we uh, spoke here, you highlighted that uh, 2024 would be the year for uh, Ukraine to gather strength. And you've written about it prolifically. Uh, you've highlighted this in a variety of articles. But one thing came out of this where we spoke about it last time, and you've stressed it now, it's the matter of both strategy in different forms and national resilience as part of um, what underpins national strategy. Volodymyr, who serves in the CSU as a former minister of Ukraine, volunteered to fight, volunteered to uh, serve his country, just highlighted that the commitment of the nation is still there, despite all the stress the nation goes through. Can you highlight the elements of national resilience you've been writing about, because I think it's absolutely vital. And I would love to hear from you how you see, from your perspective, when you've been to Ukraine, how this has developed in the civil military uh, environment. Yeah, I think uh, if you look at it from a general point of view, before we look at it specifically from Ukraine, um, there are many different elements. So firstly, um, there's military resilience. This is the capacity to, you know, train, deploy, sustain a large force in the field uh, that is also able to learn and adapt, uh, that also has the right kinds of weapons for the right kinds of mission. So I think that there's a military re resilience that's very important. Um, supporting that is industrial resilience, it's the capacity to either produce or to source or to do a combination of these two, the necessary amount of weapons and munitions to fight in a modern war. Now, this could be tanks and artillery, it could be um, 155, it could be various types of drones, uh, but I think industrial resilience is, is very important. A third element of resilience is civil defence. Uh, this is the capacity to ensure that a population is hardened against uh, both the physical as well as informational um, aggression of an enemy. And that can be everything from having, you know, resilient police, fire, ambulance services, through to the educational elements that prepare people to resist the kind of misinformation and disinformation that we see routinely from Russia, China and countries like that. Um, so these are all very important components of resilience, but I think overarching all this, the most important is will, uh, whether it's individual or national will. The will to do difficult things, the will to make difficult decisions about prioritisation, the will to join, to serve and serve for as long as required. So I think all of these are important elements of resilience. And I think we've seen all of them play out and evolve uh, over the last two years. It's interesting that we always come back to these um 
core points and the dignity of the human being in service because it can only be created by will. It's a problem that Heidegger, uh, say, unfortunately misinterpreted as an art form. I think it's something much more visceral. And uh, Volodymyr just highlighted this, that the decision for him to step in and immediately volunteer was extremely quickly. So it had to be in him in some shape or form. And it seems that the Ukrainians do have exactly that. They have this immediate commitment that is not even in doubt. We can discuss the, the mobilization, and we will, but that, and I presume that was also your observation, that the commitment and therefore the will of the people is definitely there. Yeah, it certainly is. Although, you know, interestingly, I, I spoke to some very senior uh, officials and, and military officers uh, on my most recent trip, and several of them said, you know, we weren't very sure whether young Ukrainians had the will to defend their country. And I thought that was very interesting, given what had happened. But if we think back over the last century or so, um, people said this about young Americans in the 1930s, who then became the greatest generation. Um, people have said this about different populations in democracies until the time came and the populace stood up. Um, so uh, whilst we've seen this from Ukraine in the last two years, I don't think it's unique to Ukraine, uh, but I think you know we should have some cause for concern about whether other democracies really do have the capacity and will to defend themselves in the modern era. Thank you. Uh, I tend to agree. Of course, it is more a universal principle, seemingly, of those who have adopted a free and democratic culture. I don't want to dive deep immediately into articles you've been writing and recently, uh, which have fascinated some of us. But um, maybe let's let's go back to the strategy. You, you've highlighted in uh, one of your um, comments uh, about the fact that the adaptation and counter-adaptation um, battle, which rages between Ukraine and Russia, is determined by at sometimes very, very small items and very small changes. Can you talk about where we stand, both tactically and strategically? Because you, you highlighted recently that essentially Russia is now on path to outperform on the strategic learning side and that Ukraine both needs to adapt and needs its allies to adapt. Yeah, I think right at the start, I'd say, you know, tactical adaptation is about the learning and change involved in winning battles and strategic adaptation is about the learning and change at a national or institutional level uh, to win wars. I think at the tactical level, there is absolutely no doubt that Ukraine is better than Russia. Uh, it has more innovative soldiers. It has more innovative units. It's got better at sharing lessons laterally and up through the institution over the last two years. Um, and, you know, things like the use of drones, closing the detection to destruction gap, the innovative use of civil and military sensors and analytical capacity, I think have all come from tactical level innovation um, during the war, but also some before the war. I mean, things like Delta preceded the war. It wasn't an invention of this war. So, you know, I think the tactical adaptation battle, um, Ukraine is generally in the lead. Uh, what I think we have seen over the last few years is the Russians have been better with top-down change, where a systemic 
change, whether it comes to, you know, the shift to defensive operations after Kharkiv, um, the implementation of things like cope cages, the rolling out of and uh, wider industrial mobilisation of the Russians as to allow them to outproduce uh, the West in things like artillery munitions and now drones um, is troubling because if you're better at strategic adaptation, you, you're more likely to have an edge that can allow you to win the war. So I think we need to firstly focus on how do we better link battlefield ideas with strategic capacity in industry, but also in strategy development, but also how do we interfere with Russia's strategic adaptation? How do we degrade their industrial output? How do we degrade the quality of information that's uh, flowing up to inform these strategic adaptations? And this is a constant thing. It just it never stops. It never stops. It never will. But is a really important part of a military institution. And most importantly, it doesn't just happen. It has to be led. Um, so good leaders, uh, as well as looking after their soldiers, uh, as well as training their people, must also be nurturing environment where learning can take place and changes that uh, result in a more effective organisation occur uh, at time in time scales that are relevant both in the battlefield and at the strategic level. Is, is it fair to see, say that uh, because Russia can currently still vertically integrate and streamline part of its industrial base better uh, because it has everything under control quite literally for a time, uh, albeit that maybe the inflow of components is, uh, well, limited and they have to rely now on China and others to do so, but that Ukraine faces this challenge in its strategy to, that it must exert influence or gain influence over and with its allies to integrate its own industrial production because it cannot on its own territory currently produce everything it needs. Uh, Alexander Kamishin, who is now in charge of strategic industries, has highlighted this as well. He's working hard, his team, everybody's working hard in Ukraine to do so, but the war production in Ukraine will not be sufficient in order to uh, satisfy all Ukraine's needs where it is, has to rely on its allies to integrate but also follow the examples and, and integrate the battlefield lessons very quickly in production. That's much more challenging if you have a coalition behind yourself and not necessarily an integration, or am I wrong? Well, I think a couple of important uh, issues here. Firstly, scale is important. Um, now, Ukraine during the Cold War had a very significant arms uh, manufacturing capability, but in the wake of the Cold War and Ukraine's um, independence, uh, a lot of those defence industries were run down. I mean, Russian defence industry uh, was run down too, but not by the same degree, but also Russian defence industry had a much higher uh, capacity. So scale matters, and Russia just has a, a greater scale of productive capacity. I think breadth also matters. Um, they're an enormous array of different things that need to be produced to fight wars in modern conditions, everything from uh, the most advanced algorithms and, and other elements of computer technology that is used in just about every piece of equipment on the battlefield, over the battlefield and on the surface and under the surface of the sea, through to boots and, uh, you know, the best uh, combat body armour, helmets, night vision equipment, small arms with, you know, the right kind of sights and, and munitions. 
And often, you know, what we're seeing in Ukraine is it just doesn't have the scale nor the breadth of production, productive capacity that Russia has indigenously. So it has, like you said, it, it needs to rely on allies. But unfortunately, many of those allies uh, are now walking into warehouses and seeing them close to empty. Um, many of those allies who have had two years to extend, expand production capacity either haven't done it or have only expanded by a very small degree. And I think this is an indictment on the uh, lack of character in many of our Western politicians, the lack of capacity to take risk, the lack of ability to explain to their citizens why it's important to shift money from social programs to defence programs. That's probably one of the greatest shortfalls in the current generation of political leaders and democracies. There, there are some good um, exemptions to this, of course, particularly in the Baltics and, and, and other places. But by and large, in a lot of Western countries, our politicians lack the communication skills. They lack, in many of them, the intellectual capacity to make a compelling argument to their citizens about a significant need for shifting of government budgetary priorities for the next couple of decades. And it worries me that uh, if we don't do this, um, we may be on the brink of a very dark era for the next couple of decades. And that is also a consequence of the very successful Russian influence and information operations, right? Well, I think that's part of it. But there are, Russian information operations only work when there's a fertile field for them to operate in. And I think uh, when you have the vast majority of democracies, not all, but the vast majority do not have robust education systems that prepare our young people to resist the kind of garbage that is churned out by the Chinese Communist Party, by the Russians, by the Iranians and North Koreans and other malign actors on a routine basis. Too many of them, including members of the US Congress, are very happy to use Rus Russian messaging for their own political and personal ends. I mean, we should remember that many of these politicians don't care about character or ideals. They care about staying in their job and getting a paycheck every week or fortnight or month. Um, so they are very fertile ground for some of these messages that Putin and the rest of the criminals he surrounds him with to flood social media, the airwaves and, and other media sources. Absolutely, 100%. Um, let me go to our friend and colleague who is actually in the ZSU, Volodymyr. Volodymyr, please, you had a question. Thank you. Uh, General, it's a great honor for me to talk to you as a, uh, just a major. You rightly mentioned that uh, drones are game changer on the tactical level. And uh, I spent a lot of time talking to my government, trying to convince them to organize production at the state level of drones of different types. Finally, it looks like the government understands the essential need for that to get a standard equipment for soldiers in the battlefield, because what happened before that there were a lot of uh, small manufacturers and every time you get a supply of new drones, you have to learn how to use them. You have to check, is it possible to use them? 
and you spent a lot of time to get educated with, for this new type of drones. But in reality, when I talk to my friends in the government, I'm just trying to get the picture. Is it possible to get supplies from the West, not only in physical te uh, terms of shells, uh, drones, missiles, but also to get uh, support uh, of uh, technologies transfer? to organize production of modern weapons uh, of the West in Ukraine or, for example, in Poland uh, or Romania close to the Ukrainian border, uh, not just to make some relief for Western uh, allies that they don't have to produce at that quantity we need right now in the battlefield and we are ready to organize that itself. What governmental people say, say to me is that it's always a big challenge that uh, Western governments are a bit reluctant to transfer technologies, even if they don't use them, let's say as uh, shells for 155 or just kind of M4 rifle and, and so on. What would you say how, how we should act in this regard? Because definitely we need much bigger volume, which is supplied right now or manufactured in Ukraine. And the uh, real uh, kind of solution for this problem should be. Uh, well, thank you, Vladimir. It's, uh, it's an honor to talk to you and, and uh, thank you uh, for your service to your country. Um, it's been a very tough year, couple of years for Ukraine and it's because of people like you that it's been able to uh, get through these two years and will will eventually win. Um, productions are, are really, as you know better than most, uh, is, is very difficult. Um, and there, there's an array of reasons. I mean, obviously, tech, technology transfer is difficult for large Western companies who uh, rely on that technology to generate income and you know they have a fiduciary duty to their own uh, stockholders so the transfer of that technology to others who might build things more cheaply is problematic but we've seen some progress here i mean we're seeing Rheinmetall setting up uh, manufacturing uh, capacity in ukraine we've seen bayraktar uh, manufacturers the turkish drone manufacturers setting up capacity uh in ukraine as well i've been to industry events in kiev uh to try and get people in you know, and I think between Minister Fedorov and Minister Kamishin, uh, they, you know, they're working, you know, 28-hour days with their staff to try and, uh, you know, get more industry into Ukraine so they can produce more stuff. Um, unfortunately, and we know this from history, and even if we look at the US in the Second World War, it takes several years to expand production capacity. You can't just do it overnight. I mean... U.S. mobilisation of industry started in about 1938-39 and it wasn't until really 42-43 where it really, really kicked into gear. So there is a necessary, well, we don't like that it's necessary, but it, there's, a, there's a time lag between when you decide to expand industrial capacity, uh, when you can build new factories, because you can't just say do two shifts instead of one, you actually need to build additional factories. That also takes time. So I think, you know, um, in the coming year, we will see further advancements in productive capacity, both in the West and, and in Ukraine. But unfortunately, it does take time. One final issue, um, you know, standardised equipment. Uh, you know, this is 
an issue that is overlooked as people write about all the really cool technologies, but things like standardised manufacture of body armour, helmets, night vision equipment, small arms, small arms munitions, is really important to soldiers. It protects their life. Uh, it ensures that if they're wounded, they're not wounded as badly. Um, and it ensures that if they need to replace something on the battlefield, it's there. Uh, and it's the same with a lot of the drones they use. So, you know, we need to focus not just on the manufacture and maintenance of big things like tanks and missiles and air defence systems. I think uh, mass production of high quality uh, soldier combat ensemble and weapons is also a really important thing that we should be ensuring uh, that we help Ukraine with. And that would enable them to then actually enter into that, what you called the digitized command and control system better because uh, you would actually give them the tools, pretty much every single soldier to be part of that information network just as well, right? That's, that's certainly part of it. But, you know, sometimes the basics uh, are really important to soldiers. Like if you have an incident and your boots get damaged, um, you want to be able to replace your boots. That's a really important thing to a soldier on the battlefield. So uh, as important as all those technological elements are, there's a whole lot of basics that are important parts of mass production that we also must pay attention to. So, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a spectrum of very important things that a modern military institution needs. Some are very low-tech and pretty basic. Some are mid-tech, like, you know, command and control stuff, and some are very high-tech. But we can't take our eye off anywhere on the spectrum because if we do, we'll be letting our soldiers down. And the Czechs have, and Poles both have just committed to actually producing exactly those in, in mass. The Czechs are producing both body armor as well as combat boots, and some of them, of course, in Ukraine even. Yeah, no, and so I mean, I know we're we're talking about very low tech uh, items, but when you have a million person military. This is a very significant undertaking. When you need to train one or 200,000 soldiers a year, this is a very significant undertaking. And you have an obligation, a moral obligation, to ensure your soldiers, if they're going to put their lives on the line, get the very best equipment, protective equipment, weapons, training and leadership that a country can provide them. It's interesting that you stress this so much, because obviously it fits in with the historical, if, if I take this back, it fits in with the historical example of the United States Army being equipped, I mean, to the gazoo in the run-up to uh, Operation Overlord. And uh, people were questioning uh, as to the warehouses and uh, how they were being stacked in Britain at that point in time. Mm. But all of these uh, were necessary, uh, whether it was yep. small arms, whether it was coats was uh, gloves were an issue for some mm. time and uh, yeah. so that is evidently necessary I, I tend to agree the key thing which i wanted to move on to if, if you allow me briefly you had this article which you brought out about uncrewed systems and it, it um I, I think it has got a lot of exposure and it fits extremely well with what actually this war is being tested you spoke about delta our friends from Ukraine have a slightly different system, but it fulfills the same kind of function. And they have been making large strides, especially in the first 12 to 15 months in using that. You said they had the tactical advantage and they were learning better and using this better. Now, 
where do you see the Ukrainians going with this? Will will they integrate with technologies which we have developed and will they have them available? Will they be able to create these mesh networks of which you spoke in terms of sensor networks, given the fact that it's very hard to build out such infrastructure easily? What could they do in order to deploy them? Yeah, so I think when we look at some of these digitized uh, command and control systems, I mean, Delta is the one a lot of people talk about. Now, Delta uh, was developed before the war, before the large-scale invasion in 2022, and it was developed in collaboration with NATO, so it was consistent with NATO standards. It has been rolled out more widely during this war, certainly, uh, you know, I would call it a very democratised approach to digital C2, far more uh, widespread than most Western armies uh, have either done or intend to do, and I think that's quite an innovation. Um, but um, we should recall it's one of several uh, large-scale digital command and control systems. Uh, I think GISRP is another very important one for fires. Uh, there's one for um, autonomous systems. Um, and these are all uh, overseen and developed uh, through the Office of Digital Transformation, which is in the Ministry of Defence. Uh, and they play a very important role in ensuring that there are constant upgrades to keep its capability at leading edge, but also to ensure security so people trust it, so the Russians can't spoof or, or degrade its its performance. But also it ensures that these this digital transformation of the battlefield we're seeing actually pervades behind the front line. So it also enhances logistics. It might enhance tracking of personnel who are wounded. Uh, it should have an influence on the training and education of soldiers, sailors, airmen and women and Marines in Ukraine. Um, so I think, you know, this war has been a really important uh, battle lab for how we develop, uh, update, assure and employ a range of different digitised command and control systems uh, for Ukraine, but also for NATO. And I have no doubt that NATO and its component members, to varying degrees, are watching and learning how Ukraine have done this. Now, of course, they're also watching how the Russians have responded and what they've done. Uh, but, you know, this is a very, very significant uh, development over the last couple of years. And... Uh, you know, clearly commercial companies, uh, whether it's Microsoft, uh, Palantir and an array of others have been very important uh, for very different reasons in supporting these um, systems. Uh, but my view is if you don't have these kind of digital command and control systems in the future, you have no chance of success. Absolutely. Thank you for that. Just very briefly, let me uh, let me highlight that our friend Volodymyr, because he obviously has to get up in four hours, will have to leave us now. Volodymyr, thank you very much. I thank you all. I'm sorry that I have to leave a bit earlier because yeah, I should be in another place yeah. in a couple of hours. Uh, we are very grateful for everything you do for Ukraine. And it will be our common victory, victory of all of us. Because every Ukrainian does understand that without support of the West, first of all, of United States and United Kingdom and many, many our friends from all over the world will be not able to withstand this invasion. 
their dream was to occupy Ukraine and to attack West. It still remains the same, and Putin has not changed his plans. And only together we will prevail in this war, and I do believe that victory will come. You know, as we, we quoted Mr. Churchill many times, and he said that it's not the end, it's not even the beginning of the end, but this is the end of beginning. I believe that we in the midst of this bloody story and we will make it happen the way we want to, to make it happen. Thank you once again for standing with Ukraine. All the best. See you soon, I hope. In Kiev thank, and thank then in Moscow. <laughs> well, thank, yes, absolutely. Thank you, Vladimir, and Slava Ukraine. Hello, Slava. Slava, let's see. All right. Thank you very much. And everybody, um, give a big hand to Volodymyr and uh, we'll have to, we hope that we'll have him back. We may even have him back to close out our 24-hour marathon at the end of this Saturday. Absolutely spiffing. Thank you very much. And thank you, General Ryan, uh, for the conversation already until now. I hope you can stay with us for a little while still. Uh, I know you have also a weekend, but... Um, I wanted to ask a question in regard to what you just discussed about the uh, drones and the things. You see, we're highlighting that it is a change in how, uh, or a change back also, if you could say, uh, how the armed forces act with the drones, because a lot of skills and a lot of trust has to be put into the people who operated. And in order for the army to take the real benefit of the system it actually has to be widely distributed the decisions have to be made by the people who now actually for the first time have more information closer to the front than ever before yeah i think that's that's a really important point uh, i just uh published a report with a uh, recently retired u.s air force three-star clint Hynote, and we talked about this concept of empowering the edge of ensuring that people right at the front line uh, where things are happening are empowered with information but are empowered with the authority to make decisions now to do that you clearly have to provide strategic context you have to provide intent within which they work um, and then those who are empowered then need to provide feedback on how they're doing in, in achieving or, or, or moving towards achieving your intent but given uh, the uh, capacity of adversaries like Russia to interfere with our command and control, to break it down with electronic warfare, to target headquarters, it makes no sense to have centralised command and control systems. I think mission command is a very good theory, but we probably need to take it even further in empowering people to make decisions with the right information whilst also ensuring they possess the correct context for that decision-making. Drones are part of how we do it. Uh, digital command and control like Delta and other systems are part of doing it, but there are two other really important components of this. Uh, firstly, it's the training and education system that prepares people to operate in that environment. You don't just naturally become an empowered leader able to make military decisions at the front line with context. You, it's something you need both training and experience to do, and we need to ensure the Ukrainian training system continues to evolve in that direction. Having spoken with General Nikoluk, Nikoluk who is the Major General in charge of training Ukrainian ground forces, I know he is of that mindset. 
He is a former brigade commander himself. He is a hero of Ukraine. He gets it and he's working very hard to adapt that and improve that training system. Uh, but ultimately, the most important element of this is good leadership. Leaders who nurture those beneath them to be empowered, to listen to their ideas, to enable them to make decisions, uh, but also who provide the right context and the right purpose, which is the environment in which people can employ mission command. So, you know, all of these go into empowering people at the edge. It's not just more drones and more digitised command and control. You have to ensure our people are prepared and led well to really generate a military advantage from that. But this is a critical, uh, um, say, competitive advantage democracies tend to have, right? Because, by the way, what you said, uh, mission command, I would say this is Auftragstaktik and innere Führung. This is the classic German approach. Um, I quote uh, Major General Widder, who once said, the German army's common image of a, of a man is that the soldier is a free person. His individual dignity is respected, just as well as his basic rights and rights of liberty, which is an interesting change from the view the German army had developed after World War I and into the absolutely atrocious World War II, where soldiers were, whilst given Auftragstaktik and Mission Command capabilities, they were not seen as having basic rights. What you just described is actually the, the major advantage of a democracy that it can enable people to make decisions intelligently um, and integrate with each other as humans. Yeah. There's a no, different moral, ethical standard. Yeah. It, it is. Uh, I think you make an interesting point there. I mean, the kind of idea you just spoke about with that German general talking about the rights and obligations of individuals are also encoded in documents like the U.S., um, declaration of independence, but somehow their military didn't have this idea about mission command until the last few decades. So um, I, I agree, uh, a democracy's greatest theoretical superpower is the ability to enable individuals and to solicit the widest variety of different ideas from different elements of society. I would call it theoretical because I think in the last decade or two, we've been very good at suppressing diversity uh, in, in our desire for diversity in universities and these kind of things, we've actually suppressed a variety of different opinions so that only a, a certain kind of diversity is encouraged, not all kinds. Now, that, that's not to say that we should find uh, people espousing ideas about fascism and Nazism and these kind of things on Western campuses or on our streets are acceptable. But I think we need to re-look at, well, what are the kind of ideas that we need to examine uh, and use that in uh, confronting, uh, I think, the very predatory and very dark kind of outlook that dictators such as Putin and Xi uh, have for the world over the coming decades? Thank you for highlighting this. Um, I think it's... The good thing is whenever we speak, uh, you manage to, to give us the greater arc in that regard. Now, we've spoken earlier about production of logistics and the likes. Um, the Chinese have been very, very low key in recent weeks. There's significantly less um, bubbling 
is that because they are helping the Russians on the sly? Or is it because they currently are just keeping their powder dry? Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? Um, you know, that we don't see the Chinese helping to defend a waterway that is critical to their economy in the Red Sea. Um, possibly it's because they don't want the, uh, their Navy working with Western navies and seeing that perhaps it's not as capable as they've bluffed us into believing. But I think more likely uh, is that the Chinese Communist Party only cares about the Chinese Communist Party. It does not care about the global commons. It does not care about democracies. It does not care about the brutal subjugation of Ukraine by one of its friends, Russia. Uh, it only makes decisions that are in its best interest. Uh, so if the Americans are happy to keep open the world's second busiest maritime trade route for them, and they don't have to shed any blood or tears, they will do that. They're ultimately a transactional uh, political party that first and foremost cares about their own power. Um, I think they probably see Russia very much the same. I mean, remember, Russia and China have fought wars against each other, so there's no love there. Um, they're, they're bedfellows because it's convenient for them at the moment. Uh, and, They're bedfellows you know, because they both have a cold back and need to cuddle up? Well, uh, I think, you know, China sees an opportunity that with all these sanctions against Russia, it can sell Russia a lot of commercial goods that have dual uses. And, you know, there's no secret there. All, all, the, all the trade figures between Russia and China have changed significantly over the last two years. You've seen a, a massive surge of Chinese goods going into Russia, uh, all of which have lots of different types of computer chips, which can be used in things besides cars and air conditioners. Um, so, you know, I think we should be very wary of China's, um, uh, how, how it sees the world. We should understand them for what they are. And it is a regime that is first and foremost focused on its own preservation, and it will throw anything, including its own people, under the bus to achieve that. There you go. Uh, I was asked to make sure that I, I don't forget about one question because you've been writing about and there have been so many different con conflicting interpretations of this. But what is your, from a military perspective, both tactically, that's probably easier to address anyway, but tactically and strategically on a military level, how do you see um, the withdrawal from Avdivka, its timing, um, disregarding the atrocities, which are tremendous, but how do you see this from a military perspective at this point in time? And what do you think the Ukrainians will have to do next in order to, say, have uh, more secure positions? Yeah, I think Avdivka, it was not like uh, Bakhmut. I, I, I won't draw comparisons there. I think it was one of those political and strategic decisions, which was the lesser of two evils. Um, you know, Ukraine at the moment is in a position and has been put in a position by the West where it does not have uh, sufficient munitions. That's a contributing factor. Another contributing factor is uh, the ongoing debate around mobilisation in Ukraine. Uh, so that is a contributing factor. Um, and the Commander-in-Chief and the President, and we shouldn't be in any doubt, this is a decision that both of them are involved in, had to make a decision on what was more important, preserving territory, or preserving their army. 
and uh, and they made it very clear this was a decision more about preserving their army than preserving ter- Ukrainian territory. At this point of the war, that is the right decision. Um, you know, if you look back to the US War of Independence, George Washington lost lots and lots of battles over the first couple of years because his priority wasn't about territory, it was about preserving the continental army. And that will probably have to be Ukraine's approach this year. I'm not suggesting they're going to lose lots and lots of battles. I'm just saying that they need to preserve their army and reconstitute, rebuild, if they want to go back on the offensive to retake and liberate Ukrainian territory either at the end of 2024 or the beginning of 2025. Okay, that begs now one additional question then. Do you think that, or would you would you agree with the, the concern that securing additional ammunition at this point in time, be it through the initiative by our good uh, friends from the Czech Republic, now being joined finally by other European nations, as well as Canada, as we hear, in order to finance part of it. Would you think that this is critical and that it will help them to get through to the point in time that they can muster all the strength, wait out what happens in the election in the US, but at the same time, build out a better integration with the Europeans to produce more ammunition? Is that enough? Because it, it could all go terribly wrong. And uh, Mr. Trump um, harnesses for whatever, for whatever purpose an election victory and then says, no, we're not going to support you any further. And that could happen then mm. as early as January next year. It could. Uh, doesn't mean we should give up. Uh, every little bit of support for Ukraine helps. You want to del- uh, donate $2? That helps. If you want to donate uh, 800,000 shells, uh, that helps. Uh, we shouldn't uh, be reserving judgment or delaying decisions just because something might happen in the future. Um, we need to make decisions based on what's important now and, you know, the next couple of uh, next few months, notwithstanding the fact there's a, a need for a longer term strategy for 2024 and beyond. So I, I saw that initiative and I thought, okay, that works, you know. Um, yeah, there's, there's no perfect solution here at the moment, given the constraints on industrial production and, and stock holdings of Western militaries and former Soviet militaries. Um, I would hope other countries start throwing in some money, including Australia, which I think has been largely parsimonious uh, during this war. In fact, Australia, over the last two years, its total contribution to the support of Ukraine, as welcome as it has been by Ukraine, is less than one week's expenditure by our Department of Defence. So there's a lot more a lot of other countries can do that have not yet really stumped up. Uh, you know, countries in Scandinavia and uh, Germany and, and the Baltics of, and Poland have been uh, are wonderful, but there's a bunch of other countries like my own that can probably do much better in this regard. Which brings me to the point of military intelligence, because it always seems to me that on the one hand, um, our colleagues are very well informed. When I speak to those, uh, be it here in Finland or in Estonia or in Germany or even our Swedish and Danish friends, and tomorrow morning or in the morning, not tomorrow, in the morning, uh, Jakob Karsgård, former head of uh, military intelligence in Denmark, will be joining us here. It seems that we know a lot about the adversary. We understand all of this. Our Estonian friends recently published documents very clearly dissecting this and trying to highlight to Western leaders how this works. 
and uh, I see that we've just been joined by our friend Douglas London, former station chief of uh, the Friends uh, from the CIA. Um, hi, Douglas. <laughs> um, and he, he has always said that the intelligence product is one thing, but how it is perceived and acted upon can be terrifyingly different from what you would expect if the intel even if the intelligence product is very clear and gives you very good action points why is it that military and intelligence in this case may actually produce good reasoning good guidance but the administration and the administrations in the west fail to do so it's a question for both of you actually yeah it's a great question but we see it constantly right i mean i think um a really good recent example is israel I mean, they had the full plan of what Hamas was going to do on 7 October and for a range of different reasons, including a failure of humility, uh, a failure of leadership at the strategic, uh, military and political level, there wasn't an appropriate response and preparation. And I've written about this. Um, so we do see, see this. Um, and we, we see it in a lot of different countries. Uh, you know, I see it in my own. Last year, we issued a defence strategic review, which talked about the most dangerous strategic environment since the Second World War, no additional money, though. Um, so, you know, politicians love announcements. They love uh, tweets. They love pictures in front of stuff. They don't love spending money on it uh, because there's no votes in it generally. Um, and that is the case in just about every democracy. Now, it's, it's less so in, in, say, the Baltics and, and Eastern Europe at the moment, but there's a lot of countries where there just is no political gain in uh, investing, in listening to intelligence agencies which and doing the spending that might be required for it. So I, I don't wish to sound cynical, but, you know, history just shows that most politicians have very little interest in defence and national security issues until they absolutely must. Well, I, yeah, I certainly agree with Nick, and I've seen enough of this on, on this end of the the pond. Um, intelligence really has been a key difference maker in the war to date. Uh, the, the advantages that Ukraine has been able to exercise with their smaller forces by knowing Russian plans and intentions has, you know, in fact, from the very beginning, everyone, including Americans, saying, well, you know, Kiev's going to fall in 72 hours. But we had the game plan. And even by marshalling their limited forces, the Ukrainians were able to fight back and, and prevent the special ops plan, certainly, that the Russians had. Going forward, the question is going to be, and again, to, to Nick's point, there may be confidence in tactical intelligence about a specific you know, strategy on the ground for a particular attack, but overall, strategically, what intelligence are they going to be listening to? When I say they, it's the big they. It's you know the Ukrainians, the Americans, the Europeans, all all the above. It, it was, and, and just to, to tout you know, one of the few public victories the CIA can talk about, it was really the United States among the Europeans as the only player that expected the Russians to attack in the first place in February of 2022. But the questions going forward from an intelligence point of view will be, what does victory look like for any of the parties, particularly what does victory look like for Russia? What does he hope to achieve? What does he think is victory? What does Mr. Zelensky and the Ukrainians consider victory? And then the flip side of the coin is, what is the threshold for capitulation or compromise? 
And those are going to be the key strategic questions that, you know, I'd like to think people in these various capitals have some answers for. I'm not so confident that they do because I keep reading, at least in the press, about, you know, who's winning, who's not winning, what does it take to win without anyone really defining what that means. And you need to know from an intelligence perspective, what does Putin see as his minimum goals before he genuinely negotiates? And I actually don't think he ever will. I, I, I'm firmly of a belief that Putin's long-range plan remains to decapitate Ukraine. And whether he pauses and signs in an agreement like Minsk II or something like that is really meaningless if there's no long-term deterrence. But where are his thresholds and, and where are the thresholds for Ukraine? Yeah, absolutely great points. And those big strategic decisions over the next 12 months, I think, um, you know, will need good intelligence, but they'll need good determined decision-making and leadership, uh, which is the other half of it, which we don't always see. Sometimes we do. Um, I, I think just on intelligence more broadly in this war, you know, it's something that I've been fascinated to see this kind of what I call this mesh sensor environment, where you're seeing a meshing of military, government and commercial sources of intelligence kind, kind of being combined and overlapped. Now, open source intelligence is nothing new, but I think we're seeing a discovery that the commercial sector and others can provide such a mass of not just data, but analytical uh, capacity that it will probably change how we uh, do a lot of things, not just in the intelligence community, but, uh, you know, decision support capacity in governments and, and military organisations. I'd commend to you the work, you know, there's a few people I follow in this space, but uh, my colleague, colleague at CSIS, Emily Harding, who's a, a former employee of uh, the agency as well, is running a project that's looking at new era intelligence methods and a whole range of things and in, in how it's going to impact strategically. Um, and, you know, if you want to have a look at some of her work, uh, you know, over the course of the war, but moving forward on intelligence, I, I think uh, that would certainly be a good investment in time. Yeah, I but, mean, obviously the, the new commercially available technology is uh, uh, helps to level the playing field for a lot of smaller powers or powers don't have the same sort of infrastructure or intelligence infrastructure. But, you know, to step back a second, I, I would submit to you that intelligence has become more of a holistic enterprise probably since 9-11 in terms of an yeah. interdependence between all the various collection capabilities, including open source and commercial. And I, I speak for, you know, Western Intel services that they're all very much invested in that. It's not just a fad, you know, open source and commercial technology has been used for a long time to complement as opposed to being an alternative. But it is an alternative for countries and non-state actors that don't have the same capabilities. And that's what poses the interesting question in terms of what's now the playing field, you know, between various powers. When we talk about great power competition and strategic competition, you know, you, you got to be careful with those definitions because smaller, smaller countries or countries that have less technical capacity can turn to very cheap and available technology. Look at drone technology and what we've seen just in this battlefield alone, let alone the rest of the world in terms of being a weapon and also being an intelligence collection platform. It, it's very much leveling the playing field. 
No, I, th I think that's a great point because in levelling the playing field with strategic intelligence collection, you're also lowering the bar to entry for strategic strike capabilities with a range of different countries. If you can do strategic targeting, uh, mensuration and post-strike analysis, um, it kind of offers a whole lot, lot of opportunities to those who might then be able to access cheaper, uh, mostly autonomous, but also, you know, ballistic uh, weapons. Uh, Houthis are a great example of this. Uh, you know, Ukrainians over the last two years have developed a very mature strategic strike system, which is a mashup of Western long-range strike weapons, Soviet-era weapons, and indigenously developed aerial and maritime strike systems. And all of it's been underpinned by this, these developments, as you say, in, in, in strategic intelligence and, and these kind of things. So, you know, I think it's a very important trend. And, you know, it's, it is changing the character of both war and, and strategic competition. Yeah, and I, certainly. Go ahead, Axel, please. No, I, I wanted to ask a question for both of you. Because, Doug, you, you put the, the thing, well, you, you brought the ball in, onto the field. <laughs> what victory look? Yeah, what victory looks like. There, if you have, you can't define a strategy if you don't know where you want to go with it. If you have no value, you can't develop culture. If you, here's the same thing, we have not yet seemingly agreed as to what victory should be, and therefore, how should the alliance, together with Ukraine, agree on strategies, and therefore, then also from there flowing all the production logistics and the likes. Can, can you please tell me what on earth currently is actually the strategy of this White House and the Alliance leaders? Let's take the four, the four nations who have just now said that they want to have Mark Rutte, who was in favor of Nord Stream, who has never served a single day, who has no military qualifications, but he's a great and solid negotiator. Saulus to Paulus, he has done great things uh, in order to push the Germans. Yes, wonderful great on the F-16, wonderful, love it, but the four nations have said, and that is the US, Britain, Germany and France, and then now joined also by Italy, that Mark Rutte should be the next candidate. <laughs> Do we actually have a strategy? Please, can somebody tell me this? Is um, there a strategy? I think, well, um, I think there's an implied strategy. Uh, I think there's a couple of elements. The first bit is help Ukraine defend itself. Uh, second element is avoid uh, a wider conflict in Europe. And a third part is avoid a nuclear exchange. Um, I don't know it's any more sophisticated than that. But, you know, I think if, we, if we're going to have a strategy, it needs to be defeat Russia. Because the way we're doing things at the moment, this war will probably just drag on if we're committed to just defending Ukraine. The commitment must be defeat Russia in Ukraine, which will take a different level of diplomacy, uh, resourcing and these kind of things. But I don't see a desire for that kind of strategy uh, in the West at the moment, unfortunately. Well, that's the, that's the problem, because everything we're saying is subject to interpretation. What does defeat Russia even mean? It means different things to different in different capitals. So does it mean a total capitulation? Does it mean the Russians, you know, leave all the occupied territory? Does it mean Putin is dead? And there's a lot of variables there that then will determine what is your strategy on the ground? What resources are you going to invest? How are you going to compete? 
And those questions also come with answers that change based on circumstances. So when Putin decided in 2022, he decided beforehand, but when he sent his troops forward, his idea of what victory looked like was the annihilation of his nemesis next door, where Ukraine would become a vassal state, uh, totally under, under Russia's sphere of influence. But is that still his definition of victory now? I think it's still his long term. But I, I think he's looking at other short-term alternatives. He's looking like more a more reasonable spokesman. And, and the reason we see him talking to Tucker Carlson recently and speaking about being open to negotiations is because he's in a different place right now than he was a year ago, two years ago. He's feeling good, but he's not feeling great. Things are going better for him, but he's not, again, to, to contradict myself, winning the war based on what winning means to him. He's looking for means to secure what he's wanted to accomplish at his minimum goals, which is the territory and in those obelisks that he's concurred with their independence. But that's not victory to him. And what's victory to Ukraine? Day one of the war was survival. And then it evolved as they did well to taking back their land. What's victory going to be to them now? So, you know, without looking like I'm dodgy here, I think uh, if I just simply kind of look from Washington, from the, the American capital, defeat is to see Russia ultimately limit its potential to threaten its allies, the United States. And I don't know for certain if that requires Russia to pull back to its borders, if I'm, if I'm being candid. I think it does, frankly. Because I think that, that Russia needs to be more along mixed terms, truly defeated. But the, the idea of, of absolutely eradicating Russia as a threat, I, I see that as unlikely, right? I see even the departure of Putin under whatever questionable circumstances it might come doesn't necessarily make Russia less of a threat in terms of what Russia's long-term interests are. So... For the interim, and again, I suggest it only as an interim, strategy has to be evolutionary, which is at a minimum, punish Russia, make it costly to them, make the war as costly as it can be to them, so they have less of an impact on the battlefield against Ukraine and are less of a threat internationally. That, that takes, obviously, a lot more assistance in terms of supplies in fighting a conventional war, but I'm fairly confident that Ukraine is very adaptive and it would be much better if they had the arms they needed to retake territory, but they can certainly continue to punish Russia and make the war more costly. And I think they have the capacity and, you know, I don't know if they're that the point of intention to become more unconventional in making the war more costly to Putin at home, which is where he is most vulnerable. Make, uh, General Ryan, long war, right? The long war plays a little bit into the hands of the Russians, but at the same time, we have anywhere between, by what measure you want to take it or by what criteria, we have anywhere between 20 and 150 times the capability and the wealth and the definitely innovation capability of Russia and even its allies. Yeah, absolutely. And I just say this is I can't answer anything after this because I've got to go to another media interview shortly. But 
Um, we certainly have the economic capacity to overwhelm Russia if we choose to use it. Um, you know, certainly Russia has stepped up the percentage of its national economy that's involved in defence spending estimates, you know, somewhere around 8% of its budget at the moment, probably higher than that, because, you know, it's not exactly a transparent process in Russia. Um, but once again, this gets back to political and national will. If it was a vital national interest, countries would be spending more than the 2% that the vast majority of us are spending at the moment. US is spending a bit more, but the reality is most countries don't spend anywhere near even 4 or 5% of their national treasure on defence. And that's probably what's going to be required, not just to defeat Russia, but deter China for something even more catastrophic in the next five to 10 years in the Western Pacific. Yeah, freedom is not free. Thank Old you, saying, but a good one. <laughs> yeah, it's unfortunate. Uh, I could go much further. I was about to make a, a pop culture comparison beforehand that I would wish for... Uh, the figure of Al Pacino to go into uh, the locker room with Scholz, Sunak, Macron, Maloney, and uh, uh, Monsieur Biden plus Sullivan and give them the inches speech, where he then says, now, I can't make you do it. You've got to look at the guy next to you. Look into his eyes. Now, I think that you're going to see a guy who will go that inch with you. Somehow, our leaders really need that uh, moment where they can sit together and decide, we want to win this. We want to save democracy because that's what it's about. You just highlighted there's an authoritarian China coming out, coming at us. There's a lot more coming. If we fail now, we will have it much harder to win later. Absolutely. No, I totally agree. And with that, uh, I, uh, I need to finish there. But uh, uh, thank you very much for having me uh, back on the program. It, it's great to have these uh, fabulous conversations. And, uh, you know, at this two-year mark of the war, we should re remember the sacrifices of the Ukrainian soldiers and citizens over the last two years. Remember those who are living in territories occupied by the Russians and uh, the terrible behaviour they're being subject to and redouble our efforts to help Ukraine uh, defeat Russia and liberate its territory. Thank you. Thank you very much, Darren Ryan. Everybody, please give a big hand to Mick Ryan and follow him on Futura Doctrina, his Substack, and uh, read his articles. There is a lot uh, going on currently, and he's been very prolific recently. <laughs> so thank you.